we're going to consider uh, these verses. We're going to consider first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-12 through 12, under three headings. First, God's judgment of the faithful. Second, God's judgment of the faithless. And third, Paul's prayer for the faithful. And those three points should be able to be found on an insert there provided in your bulletins. Uh, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And before diving into our first point, let me just explain how I think the logic of this passage kind of holds together and works together. Paul shares with the Thessalonians that their persevering faith is evidence that God has judged them as righteous in Jesus Christ. He then turns to assure these brothers and sisters that one day God will grant them relief and finally repay their persecutors in judgment. And finally, in light of this, Paul prays that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will be glorified in their lives. So let's begin with our first point. God's judgment of the faithful. God's judgment of the faithful. We see this in verse 5. Read verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. The opening of verse 5, that, those three words, this is evidence, reminds us that we need to keep in mind the, the larger context of what we're reading. What? What is evidence? Thinking structurally and grammatically, it seems that Paul's referring back to what he just said in the opening of his letter, particularly verses 3 and 4, where Paul, you see, thanked God and boasted in the Thessalonians, enduring faith in the, pa- in the face of persecutions and afflictions. The, the translation in the NIV Uh, actually brings this connection out by saying all this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So what is this evidence that Paul sees in the lives of the Thessalonians that communicates to him that God's judgment about them is is righteous, that it's good and just? Is the evidence the, the mere fact that they have been persecuted and endured trials? It could be. Not only are their persecutions and afflictions the closest point of reference textually, but in the broader biblical testimony, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said to his disciples in, in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The presence of persecution and trials may be the evidence that Paul is thinking about, but I think that there is something coupled with this persecution and affliction that Paul views as the evidence of God's righteous judgment. Take a look at the last three words of verse 4. You are enduring. It's one thing to encounter persecution and afflictions. It's another thing to endure in the midst of it. The Thessalonians' endurance, their steadfastness in the faith, their perseverance in the face of persecutions and afflictions is the evidence that Paul sees in their lives. And remember, it's what Paul boasted about and thanked God for. The Thessalonians' endurance in faith is the evidence, but what is this righteous judgment of God about them? Let's remember that God has already made a righteous judgment about the Thessalonians. All who come to faith in Jesus Christ are judged as just by God. In other words, they are judged as righteous in His sight. They are justified. Justification is a judicial and declarative act of God, 
where He pardons all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight, but only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed or credited to us. And we receive this by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Paul can tell by the enduring faith of the Thessalonians that God's judgment about them is right and righteous. He can tell that they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for it is the very thing that they are suffering for. I found uh, one commentator, Dr. Greg Beal's explanation of this verse very helpful. He said uh, that the Thessalonians, quote, enduring faith through suffering is the badge, the evidence or sign by which they will be counted worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God at the end of history. And uh, Dr. Beale, he went on to explain this by way of analogy. He says, uh, you must pay money to obtain entry to a professional football game. In order to enter the stadium, however, you must present the ticket at the gate. Is it the money that provides access to the game or the ticket? Both. But are the money and the ticket equal causes to get you in? Ultimately, the money paid is what really gets you in, but you must have the ticket as evidence that the price was paid for the game. I like that analogy. I think it's really helpful. Uh, do you see how it helps us understand what Paul is saying here? Jesus paid the price so that the Thessalonians and we might be judged as righteous in God's sight and admitted into His heavenly kingdom. But it was the Thessalonians' enduring faith in the face of persecutions and afflictions that showed Paul and the watching world that they were going to enter the kingdom of God on the last day. God does not intend for our entrance into the kingdom of God to be a secret matter. He intends for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and the watching world to know that we're going to enter the kingdom of God by our enduring faith. God is not only just and the justifier, but He intends for the world to know that He is just and who has been justified by their enduring faith. Paul, I think, is saying sim something similar to what James said in James chapter 2 about faith and works. Faith shows itself by its works. Faith works itself out in the lives of the faithful so that others can see what faith in Jesus really is on just how worthy of faith Jesus is. As a Protestant, as a Bible-believing church, we believe that we are saved by faith alone. And we also believe that our faith will never be alone. It will always be accompanied by good works. Brothers and sisters, what evidence does your life yield? What evidence of grace can be seen in your life by your fellow church members and Christians? Do you, do, do others see in your life an increasing love for God? Do you, do, do others see in your life an increasing love for God's people? Is the, is the character of Christ increasingly formed in you? Are you growing in patience? Are you increasing and growing in strength to say no to the sinful desires of the flesh? Are you increasingly refusing to gossip? Are you laboring for peace with others? Are you practicing patience and gentleness? Are you praying for greater self-control? It's, it's been uh, such a joy for me to see the Lord at work in your lives and seeing Christ formed in you in these ways and more. Let's pray for one another that our lives will be filled with the evidence of God's righteous judgment 
about us. Right now, uh, as, a, as a church, we aren't facing the persecution that our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica faced in the first century. We can give thanks to God for that mercy. But we still do suffer the afflictions that come with living in a fallen world. Suffering abounds around us. And some of us have suffered. And some of us will suffer. Some have lost children through miscarriages. Some have endured abuse. Some have endured broken relationships. Some have been afflicted with pain and illness. These and others are hard things that we have and can face in this world of sin. Brothers and sisters, part of the enduring affliction and suffering means that we remember our heavenly hope. We endure these things in faith, believing that the one who has gone to the cross and through the grave will give us the crown of life that He's promised. Pray for one another. Pray that your fellow brothers and sisters would endure in faith whatever hardship the Lord may permit, so that the Lord Jesus may be seen to be worthy of our faith. Well, having considered God's judgment of the faithful, let's turn now and consider our second point. God's judgment of the faithless. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now the judicial tone and, and focus that Paul brought out in verse 5 continues in these verses as well. Just look at the first part of verse 6 again. Since indeed God considers it just. In this context of justice, that word since uh, could be puzzling, but I don't think it needs to be. Since God's judgment of the Thessalonians was righteous and just, the Thessalonians can fully expect Him to be righteous and just with those who persecute and afflict them. Since God justly judges those who are full of enduring faith toward Him, we can fully expect Him to justly judge those who are full of hatred toward Him and His people. God will judge the faithless. And notice too the justice the, the, the justness of the justice there in verse 6. Those who are afflicting the Thessalonians will be repaid with affliction. Another translation says that God will pay back with trouble those who trouble the Thessalonians. What they have sown, they will reap. Those who have afflicted the Thessalonians have justly earned this reward of divine affliction. They will receive their just deserts. Now verses 6 and 7 also describe how this justice is worked out. They describe how the just judge will reward those who persecute the faithful, and it describes how the Lord will reward those who persevere in faith. God's justice demands that the persecutors be paid or repaid for all of the afflictions they poured out on the Thessalonians. 
God's justice also demands that he grant relief to the Thessalonians who have persevered in faith. God renders an even-handed and fair judgment for both the righteous and the wicked, for the faithful and the faithless. God is just. Children, youth, uh, young adults, I, I wonder, does this encourage you to trust God? I think it should encourage you to trust God. Let me ask you this. Do, do, you, do you experience injustice in this life? Have you ever been in trouble for something that a sibling, friend, or classmate did? Uh, your parents, teachers, and coaches are finite and fallen human beings. So they're not always going to judge situations fairly. Uh, they can't see all things and know all things. It's not because when they, when they fail to give appropriate justice, it's not because they mean to be unjust, but it's because they're not like God who is infinite and sees all things. On, on the last day, God will judge all things fairly, and Christians hope for that day and live in light of that day. So, children, youth, young adults, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to, to speak uh, with your parents about how the, the justness of God's justice rendered on the last day helps them to live in patient endurance today, trusting that God will eventually right all wrongs. It'll be a wonderful conversation to have with them. And I, and I don't know if you noticed this, brothers and sisters, but, but Paul even brings himself into the equation there in verse 7. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, not only will the Thessalonians be granted relief from their persecutors, but so will Paul. If you know Paul's life story, then you know he faced persecution time and time again. He was even run out of Thessalonica by persecutors after establishing the church, both he and the Thessalonians and all Christians who have faced affliction at the hands of wicked men will be granted relief, or we could even say eternal rest. Paul is, is actually, as he's giving counsel to the Thessalonian church, he's actually counseling himself. He's encouraging himself to persevere. We can learn, I think, from Paul here. Very often, the truth of God's word that we're trying to extend and comfort others with actually applies to us as well. This truth that God will judge and repay the faithless also encourages the Thessalonians and us not to retaliate, against injustice. We ought not repay evil with evil, but leave room for God's vengeance. This is what Paul tells the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When will this retribution and relief come? When will this judgment come? Paul says that it will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. In other words, God's payment, his repayment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous will take place at the same time, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this coming of Jesus is no secret. He's revealed. His return is not concealed. Nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus' return and his dealings with his people at his return considered secret. 
That word revealed means literally unveiling. Heaven will be unveiled. And the Lord Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the faithful and the faithless. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is, is talking about the final judgment. He says that the sheep and the goats are separated at the same time. He will welcome the sheep into his kingdom and the goats he will banish into the eternal fire. It's all part of the same event. Jesus summarizes it this way in Matthew chapter 25, verse 26. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the reason I belabor this point is because this rest and relief for the church on earth does not occur until the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, as verse 7 says. In other words, the character of the Christian church on earth will be one predominantly marked by suffering until the return of Christ. That is something that the health and wealth and prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland will not tell you. Yes, there is victory in Jesus. There is defeat of sin and death. But identifying with Christ means following in the way of his suffering until he returns. Until Jesus returns, Christians must live in a fallen world marred by sin and disease and death. Until Jesus returns, Christians must live in a world that is at war with and hostile to God and his people. While the Christian life is filled with joy, it does not mean that sorrow and suffering are absent. And we know that in our lives, don't we? Preachers out there who tell you that following Jesus is only and always filled with happiness and health and heavy blocks of gold in your bank account are lying to you. Amen. Ask yourself this question, what was the pattern of Jesus' life? Was it not suffering and then glory? What what will the pattern of Jesus' followers be? It will be suffering and then glory too. This is also another reason why it's so appropriate for Paul to describe the Thessalonians' reward as relief. Okay, so God will repay with affliction those who have been afflicting the people of God. But who are those people? Paul tells us who they're in verse 8. He says, they, they are those who do not know God. They are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is to be known and his gospel is to be obeyed. These are actually parallel phrases that explain one another. In other words, they're not two separate groups of people, but one and the same. Those who do not know God are those who reject the rule of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and refuse to obey him. To know God is to love him fear Him and obey Him. To know God is to have faith in Him and His promises concerning the good news of His Son and His coming in glory. That is what the word gospel means. It means good news. The good news is that Jesus came to live and die and be raised from the grave for sinners. But implicit with this good news is an imperative, a command to repent and believe. The gospel is to be obeyed. When the Lord Jesus Christ steps onto the scene in the opening of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1.15, he begins to preach in his preaching ministry. He commands his hearers to repent and believe 
For the kingdom of God is at hand. If they chose to obey His command, they would repent of their sins. They would turn away from their sins and believe that He was their Savior. If they chose to disobey Jesus' commands, they were choosing not to turn from their sins. They refused to believe that He was their Savior. Choosing to disobey Jesus and the good news that He came to save sinners has consequences. Not only is a person left without knowing the love of God as Father, but a person is then promised that he will face the eternal vengeance of God. And maybe you think to yourself, you know, I, I'm okay because I'm not, I'm not a persecutor of Christians. I'm, I'm here this morning uh, with my Christian friends and family. I'm not going to endure this fiery vengeance of God. Well, the reality is, is that Paul actually brings persecutors into a broader group of people who will be punished by God. It is true that persecutors will be paid back for their wrongs, but they are a subset of the people who do not know God or obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should all be sobered by the words of verse 9, for it is a further explication, an explanation of God's promise to inflict vengeance in verse 8. The first three words of verse 9 are harrowing. They will suffer. How can you not shudder at the thought of that? They will suffer. There is no escape. No hope of escaping suffering. It will happen. And and what will they suffer? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is what we read about. Earlier in the service, when we read from Isaiah 66, you remember that reading? You remember Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15? For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And did you notice that Paul says this is an eternal destruction? It does not mean annihilation. It does not mean that once destroyed, the outcome is eternal. No, it means that the suffering of eternal destruction goes on and on and on and on without end. Listen again to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, where we're told that the fire will not die. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence. To all flesh. One scholar, Robert Chisholm, says that this scene is a maggot infested mass grave from which the smoke of burning corpses ascends continually. The, the Old Testament taught and teaches that God's final judgment is an eternal judgment which goes on and keeps going on without end. And what is worse is that this judgment is consciously endured for all eternity. This is nowhere more clearly seen than in Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. So so keeping one finger here, turn toward the end of your Bibles to Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find it on page um, 1036. 1036, Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. Uh, Though this passage is is filled with, with metaphors, it still has a literal meaning. And the meaning is simply this, those who do not know God or worship God, but instead worship and serve all that is opposed to God will drain the cup of God's wrath 
to the dregs for all eternity. The cup is never empty of God's wrath. The Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11, writes, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its images, image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. <coughs> Turning back to 2 Thessalonians, remember what Paul said there in verse 7, chapter 1? He said that God was going to grant his people relief or rest. God's people don't have rest from suffering now, but rest is coming. Those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ may have rest from suffering now, but they will not have rest from suffering when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. In verse 10, Paul circles back to the return of the Lord Jesus to build on what he has said about the relief of Christians. Not only will Christians have relief, but they will glorify and honor, marvel at Jesus on that day. Brothers and sisters, we will marvel at Jesus on that day. Is your heart thrilled today by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to spare you from God's wrath? Is your heart thrilled by Jesus? If you think that you love Jesus today, you just wait till that day. You will marvel at Him on that day. Your love for Jesus on this day won't even compare to your love for Jesus on that day. On that day, all of your faith-filled hopes in Him will reach their eternal goal. And that is why we can persevere in the midst of hardship today. A marvelous day is coming. That day will be a day of delight instead of a day of dread for those who believe. And the difference between delighting in Jesus on that day or dreading His judgment on that day is faith or belief. Those who believe the apostolic witness or testimony that Paul preached to the Thessalonians, he said about Jesus, those who believe that apostolic preaching about Jesus those who believe what Jesus' disciples and Paul taught about Him is what, what brings about a different end from those who do not know God or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most pressing question that verses 6 to 10 present you with this morning is what will your end be when the end comes? What will your end be when the end comes? Will it be a day of eternal delight or a day of eternal destruction? And the difference between the two is faith. Do you believe? Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to come to know God. 
to become a follower of Jesus and to obey His gospel by turning from your sins and following after Him. Friend, the good news, the good news holds out to you the hope of eternal life. But refusing to believe the truth about Jesus only holds out the prospect of death and eternal destruction from the hands of the Almighty, most holy, all-powerful God. And do not let Satan trick you into thinking that this is just some rhetorical scheme, some fear-mongering tactic. I assure you it is not. My plea with you is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ from a sincere concern for your soul. Friend, I want you to escape the eternal self-conscious torment described here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And you can escape through believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what is this gospel? How can you obey it? Well, the gospel is a message. It's a message about God, about mankind, about you and me. It's a message about Jesus and what He has done. It's a message which calls us to obey Jesus through repentance and faith. This gospel is first a message about God. God created the world and all that is in it. He created it beautiful and good and perfect. And God created man in his own image. God created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. They were to live for God, bring him glory and honor and to love him and serve him above all things. In love, God set Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, a paradise, really. And he told them that they may eat of every tree in the garden except for one. They could eat from every tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they obeyed, they would have life. But if they disobeyed, God promised that they would die. Sadly, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands. They took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of trusting and obeying God, they decided that they were going to trust themselves and obey the desires of their own hearts. This is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is disobedience against God. It is rebellion because God has authored our lives. He has the right to exercise His good authority over them. But in our disobedience, rebellion, and sin, we have set ourselves up as our own rulers and rejected God's rule and His right to rule in our lives. So do you see why Paul mentioned obedience? God has been concerned with faith-filled obedience from the very beginning of the Bible. Do you remember how Paul said that God would punish those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus in verse 8? The truth about mankind, about you and me, is that we've all sinned against God. We've all decided to live our own way. We've all disobeyed, and our disobedience incurs God's wrath. Adam and Eve were kicked out. They were shut out of God's presence in the garden of heavenly glory. And uh, they were shut out of presence in the garden, and, and those who do not obey the gospel will be shut out of God's eternal presence in the garden of heavenly glory. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul uh, taught that the wages, the payment that's due to sin is death. Because of our sin, we are in danger of being eternally condemned. We are in danger of facing God's just wrath and punishment against our sin forever in hell. But friends, there is good news, and this is it. 
that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only most beloved son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not face that eternal destruction, but have eternal life. The great and glorious and gracious surprise of the Bible is that God sent his very own son to live the life that you and I have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God. He lived a perfectly, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He perfectly obeyed God the Father. He obeyed God the Father even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Because God is just and because He cannot let sins go unpunished, He laid the punishment for the sins of His people on His own Son. Jesus paid the wages of sin in His death. And on the cross, Jesus endured the eternal wrath of God for all who would obey His commands to believe that He is their Savior. Jesus was the only one who could do this for sinners. He was the only one who could offer His life as a perfect sacrifice because He was the only one who was sinless and perfect. He was the only one who could endure the Father's infinite and eternal wrath against sin because He Himself was infinite and eternal. And of course... He was ultimately lifted up from the grave three days after His death. In His resurrection, God the Father vindicated Him and proved to us all that His humble life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was accepted by God. Now, friends, Jesus calls all of us. He calls you and me to obey Him. By turning from our sins and placing our faith in Him, Jesus calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord to confess that we're sinners and that He is our Savior. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to urge you to turn from your sins today and to believe that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that deserves to be poured out on your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight on the day that He returns. So that on that day, instead of dreading His return, you will delight in it. So that on that day, on the day of His return, you might marvel that Jesus gave His life for you and your sins. This is what it means to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And and if you want to know more about what it means to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus each and every day in your life and to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk with you uh, after the service. We will be at the door at the back. Talk with a friend or family member that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important Uh, There's nothing more important you can think about this morning than what it means to turn from your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So far, Paul has said that the Thessalonians' faith is evidence of God's righteous judgment. And Paul has also said that God will judge the faithless. The reality of God's judgment leads Paul to share with the Thessalonians his prayer for them. And this is the third point that we want to consider together. Paul's prayer for the faithful. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer here is so simple and yet so profound. This is the third time in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians that Paul explains that he prays for them. 
He prays regularly, constantly, or as he says in verse 11, he prays always uh, for this congregation. Now, Paul doesn't always pray for them in exclusion to other things. He, you know, he has to eat and sleep. Uh, what he's saying by saying he always prays, that he's regularly and constantly praying for this congregation. And this constant praying for them reveals his heart of love for this church. So what, what is it that Paul prays for them? Two things. First, that they would be counted or made worthy of the Lord's calling. And secondly, that they may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. Now by calling there, Paul means God's effectual calling of believers to faith in Christ. And therefore, onto heavenly glory. Calling, in Paul's letters, almost always uh, refers to God's calling a person or a people to salvation in Jesus Christ. So Paul is praying that God would make the Thessalonians worthy of that calling. Paul is praying that God would glorify himself in the lives of the Thessalonians. And don't you love just how much Paul's prayer depends upon God to act and work? Paul prays that God would make the Thessalonians worthy of that which he has already called them to. Only God can make his people worthy of his calling. He does that by uniting believers to Christ in faith, justifying them and counting them worthy because of Jesus Christ, and then working that faith out in their lives through sanctification. This was a prayer that Paul could be sure that God would be pleased to answer because the Lord begins a good work of calling a person to salvation in Jesus Christ, and he carries it on to the day of completion. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that. Paul also knows that God uses practical means in the lives of his people. So even while Paul prays for the Lord to make these believers worthy, he also prays that they would work out their salvation, doing so by the power of God. Christians are to resolve for good and pursue works of faith by the power of God. Not because they will be saved through them, but because they have been saved. We, Christian, we are to do good works. The Thessalonians' pursuit of good and works of faith are done by the power of God and rooted in His gospel call to faith. What about us? What good are we resolving to do? At some level, we have to purpose and plan to do good. Displaying Christ-likeness in our lives through acts of love and deeds of faith normally don't happen by accident. Normally, we must actually take some time to consider the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, consider the needs of our neighbors, co-workers, friends, and then develop some kind of plan to pursue those acts of love and deeds of faith. Take some time this week and, and think through who and how you can serve others so that the likeness of Christ might be seen in your acts of love and your deeds of faith. Maybe there's a neighbor who is lonely or suffering that you should have over to your home on a, on a regular basis. Maybe there's a, a co-worker who could use a ride home every once in a while. Maybe uh, another brother or sister has asked you to get together for coffee and prayer and you just kind of haven't made the time yet. Let's resolve purpose and plan to do good so that the Lord Jesus might be made known in us. And, and why does Paul offer this prayer for the Thessalonians? 
Verse 12, you'll notice, begins with a purpose clause, so that. Paul offers this prayer for the Thessalonians, so that, or for the purpose of, the name of the Lord Jesus being glorified in the Thessalonians and so that they would be glorified in the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is praying that the glorious character of Christ would be displayed in the lives of the Thessalonians through their spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort, as one Christian has put it. We want to see the Lord Jesus glorified in our lives. And Paul wants Jesus to be seen in their sanctification, in their working out their faith. That is why we as Christians pursue sanctification or Christ-likeness. So that the likeness of Christ can be seen in us and therefore bring Him glory. We pursue the glory of Christ in our lives until He returns in glory. And that's the second reason for Paul's prayer. Paul wants the name of the Lord Jesus to be honored and glorified in the lives of the Thessalonians, but he also wants the Thessalonians to be glorified in the Lord Jesus. That's what he means by those four little words, and you in him, in the middle of verse 12. When the Lord Jesus returns, Paul wants these believers to be those received into Jesus' heavenly glory and given glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus was given at his resurrection. Believers will receive glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus because they are united to Him and He has received a glorified body in His resurrection from the dead. Because God the Father glorified Him in raising Him from the dead, so all of those who are united to Him by faith will receive glorified bodies or be glorified in Him at His return. Because Jesus has been glorified, we will be glorified. Don't ever underestimate the importance of Jesus' resurrection in connection with your hope of future glory. All of this will happen according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's gracious plan for His people. And it is Paul's prayer. So here's here's the bottom line of Paul's prayer. This is where I'd like us to conclude. Paul is praying that the life and glory of the Lord Jesus would be made manifest in the lives of the Thessalonians. As long as they live, Paul wants Christ to be glorified in their lives. And Paul wants them to reach the glory promised and previewed to them in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be a wonderful prayer to offer for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Wouldn't you want someone to pray for you? Lord Jesus, glorify yourself in Mike's life. And by your grace, bring Mike into the glory that Jesus now has. I'd love for you to offer that prayer for me. And I want you to know that I'll certainly be offering that prayer for you. And and let's have faith that our God is pleased to answer our prayers according to His grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this portion of Paul's letter. Lord, we we give you thanks for the the comfort that we can know through it. That that you are righteous and just toward your people. So Lord, we we pray and ask that uh, our faith and our working out of our faith would proclaim to the world and to each other that you have called us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, we pray and ask uh, that you would save sinners. Oh Lord, we, we know that your judgment is coming. And Lord, we long uh, to see those who do not know you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we pray that you would save and redeem and be merciful. Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to keep trusting you and trusting in your just justice on the last day. Lord, we, we pray too that you would glorify yourself in our lives and, and by your grace bring us into the glory that Jesus now has. So Lord, we pray and ask that you would answer this according to your grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.